This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 516 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Tom and Jen Satterley. Now, Tom and Jem have such a unique perspective that is so incredibly powerful. So brace yourself for some truth bombs and some incredibly important perspectives. Tom spent his career in the U.S. Army, most of which in Special Forces serving with Delta. Jem was a videographer who was attached to a Special Forces unit to document their training. And that's where Tom and Jen's lines intersected. So we discuss a host of topics from Tom's first deployment, which ended up being Mogadishu, through to Operation Red Dawn that led to the capture of Saddam Hussein, Tom's own mental health journey, the importance of having a partner that identifies what you're going through, and then how they came together to not only write books, but to create the All Secure Foundation. Before we get to the interview, please take a moment and go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a library of well over 500 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you pay it forward and share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Tom and Jen Satterley. Enjoy.
Well, Tom and Jen, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Absolutely our pleasure, and we're so happy that you brought us on. So the very first question I love to ask people, where are we finding you on planet Earth today? <laughs> where are you not finding I'm Sadly, you? We're, we're stuck in St. Louis, Missouri. And to all the St. Louis people, sorry. We love St. Louis. <laughs> <laughs> not in the winter, though. So I love to start the very beginning chronologically. And obviously, you know, there's, there's two of you. So um, we'll start, you know, timeline wise with, with Tom first. And so, Tom, tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings. Yeah, I was born in Seymour, Indiana. And um, my parents were married uh, my entire, you know, childhood growing up. I mean, they, they were married till they died. Um, my mom died a year ago. My dad died two years ago. Or as a yeah. man, yeah. And um, I had, uh, I'm the youngest of three. My oldest was a sister, and my the middle was a, another brother, and then I'm the youngest. And our dynamic was, um, I mean, I had a pretty good childhood. I, you know, nobody put cigarettes out on me. I wasn't starving. Yeah, it was one of those, I probably as a child didn't feel like I had anything because we were broke. But my parents taught me that, hey, hard work pays off. So I went out and did my own thing to make my own money to buy my own stuff that I needed. So really gave me a good work ethic. I was close with my sister, um, a bit more so than my brother because he was the intelligent one, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I connected more. The responsible, intelligent middle brother. Uh, my older sister was more crazy and I kind of was drawn to that a little bit. Crazy meaning outgoing and um, fun. Yeah. Which meant getting in trouble. But uh, as kids. But so Which pretty, is more fun than being responsible. Yeah, I mean, it was so. a pretty good childhood. It was, uh, you know, I wasn't spoiled and I, I didn't starve, you know, so I learned a lot. And it was a loving house, I think. I didn't realize it back then um, until I see other families. <laughs> and I realized, oh, I had a loving family and I didn't realize it. But yeah, I have no complaints. Staying on that topic just for a moment, um, and this will be for both of you. One of the things that I've learned as a student by being, you know, hosting this podcast and getting all these people on that I didn't realize is how many people in the uniform professions, whether it's first responder or military, had a lot of childhood trauma. And that childhood trauma could be, as you said, cigarettes, you know, put out on their on their body, or it could be feeling unloved. You know, a parent left, they were adopted, they were the middle child, whatever it was. Um, this is for both of you. When you look back, were there any elements of your childhood now with this new lens that you have on the mental health side that you contribute to, you know, maybe some of the darkest days that you went through? My childhood gave me stability, um, calmness. My father showed me calmness with three children who do crazy things, um, I was I was insanely crazy um, growing up. I played ninja all the time with other people's properties and stuff. It was um, never got caught. <laughs> Rarely. Rarely. Got so <laughs> I had an understanding, calm presence at the home that taught me that. Um, my mother was more nose to the grindstone, work ethic. You know, I used to say, "Oh, mom showed us love." I think my father showed me the love, the calm, patient love. My mom showed me the put your nose down and get to work and you'll get what you work for, not what you want. You know, um, I tell people now, you know, your parents lied to you. They always say, you can be anything you want it. Right. And you're like, Hey, I can be anything I want. And I said, no, they lied to you because they didn't finish the sentence. You know, as long as you work your ass off for it, you can be anything you want, you know? And, and I think I learned that 
so that taught me, you know, looking back now that the, the situations I found myself in once starting off in Somalia in 93, I was pretty young. I handled it then pretty well. I handle chaos on targets really well. I've heard that from people. You know, I, I hate even to say it. I hate, feel like I'm bragging, but I've heard it recently, which makes me feel good. Hey, I always heard you over the radio. It was very calming. It gave me that soothing, we're going to be okay effect in a chaotic situation. And I contribute that um, directly to my father and, and what I saw him doing growing up. Because, you know, you don't learn it just what you're taught. You learn what you see mostly, you know. And, and I think I picked up on how he handled most situations when we were crazy children that I, I don't have the patience to do for uh, with children now, but I had it in my my work relationships. I think for me, it was quite the opposite. I, you know, I did have loving parents, um, but my mom, you know, she was raised with a schizophrenic father. And this was back in the 19, you know, 50s, 60s. So her experience growing up was pretty rough. Bipolar mother, you know, she loved her parents very much, but she was raised with a lot, a lot of trauma. And so, you know, she passed that on. She didn't ever learn to control or manage or heal from her trauma. So that was just brought into my childhood, which showed up like PTS does for so many people and so many children, which is just a very violent, aggressive household. And so I, as a child, I thought, yeah, this household's different. I, I know I'm, I'm different from the other friends that I have because, you know, I, I grew up very middle class, you know, the, the suburb neighborhood with the clean cut grass and, you know, well-cupped houses. But behind those doors was a very different experience for me. And there was a lot of shame and embarrassment in it. And that's not something I even realized till I was an adult that I carried some blame for her behavior just because at a young age, you don't understand. Um, it was always, what am I doing wrong? And, you know, one of the connections for me is when I'm working with spouses now, it that's mirrored back to me is, you know, when I start explaining secondary PTS, when I start explaining how trauma, whether it's from law enforcement or war overseas, how that shows up in the house and it's not your fault. And, you know, I'll have spouses cry every day to me saying all these years, that anger, you know, the violence or the aggression or the reckless behavior that was coming into the house. I thought it was my fault. I was ashamed of it, embarrassed of it, couldn't tell family or friends about it. And I'm like, yeah, I, I remember that feeling. You know, I know that feeling. I know what that feels like. So it absolutely creeps into my life every day for sure. I always look at it like I was raised in a loving home. Not, you know, no trauma to speak of, right? Um, my trauma came in adult, you know, young adult living. And I tried to raise a son after that. Not very good job at it. I wasn't there. You know, I wasn't, I didn't know how to. I was afraid of it. Like most people, they run from it. I'd rather stay at work till eight o'clock at night. They go home, you know, and have to deal with what I don't know. You know, and Jen was raised in an, in an abusive home with not so much adult childhood trauma, and she's got a very close relationship with her children. I mean, more than I've seen, more than I've seen anywhere, you know, pancakes with eyeballs and smiley faces <laughs> and shaped like teddy bears. And then, you know, kids always complain. I'm like, look what you have. Winnie the Pooh and Piglet shaped in pancakes <laughs> with blueberry eyes and syrup. I've never had that, right? And I had a wonderful childhood. The work and effort she's put in, so the lessons she's learned and what she took from her childhood that she's using now, you know? To help adults 
you know, through through tough times. It's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, well, I want to get to that journey, you know, with both of you, because I think one, we have one of two roads to take at that fork. Either you follow the abuse and you become another domino in the line, or you decide that the buck stops here and you change. So kind of just while we're on the topic, Jen, what changed within you to create the mindset that you weren't A, going to be ashamed of your past and B, that you weren't going to allow that to permeate into your own family? A lot of healing work. And I think it came pretty young. So one thing that, you know, people will look at Tom and say, oh, my gosh, what you're doing now, you know, helping veterans, helping active duty, helping law enforcement, that's even more impactful than your career as a as a combat warrior. And I think um, that's, you know, to me, that's true. I'm not going to speak for him. No, and, yeah, and, it's true. I, I believe it now. I, yeah, fully believe that. Now. Yeah, I, I do. And, and so I think that, you know, a healing from a young age, I the same kind of application of Tom getting into All Secure Foundation, finding his purpose and like really giving back to other people, hugely, hugely transformative for Tom. And, you know, that that service connection, I had at a very, very young age, too. So there was even a joke when I was 16 in high school, they called me the counselor. And so like, you know, I'm a sophomore, but senior girls would plop down. I didn't even know. And like, okay, I hear I can talk to you. And it became so much that I actually had to go see a counselor to dump all the stuff that was coming onto my plate. But I'll tell you, hearing other people's stories at that young age and then starting to understand, oh, that girl had a really screwed up childhood too. Oh my gosh, that girl was molested. Oh my gosh, this girl was raped at 14 by an, oh my gosh. And I started to really understand that this perception that I had that everyone else's home life was better, the grass is greener kind of scenario isn't true. And that I had friends that I was close to and I didn't even understand or know their deep, dark secrets of their childhood or their experiences in young adults. So I think I learned at a very young age, hey, this is my mom's baggage. This is her... Um, this is her being, I, I hate the word broken, but truly she was broken, injured, injured, you know, and, and couldn't put the pieces back together. And, you know, from a young age, I started to see that with unhealed trauma, with, with the way that my mom approached life, which is shove it under the rug, it'll go away, that it got worse and it kept getting worse and worse with time, not better. And I think at a very young age, I decided even before high school, maybe in grade school, that I became very determined, I'm going to be a good mom. Like, this is not going to repeat. Like, the buck stops here. I'll never hit a child. I'll never demean a child. I will never um, put negative thoughts into their head because I know once they're there, they're really, really hard to get back out. And so it was very conscious. Um, and I will say, when my kids were toddlers, you know, one and three years old, and they're having fits. And there are many moments where I'm like, I have to go outside and take a little walk for a minute so they don't repeat this behavior because it is learned behavior. But I think being conscious, healing early on, hearing other people's stories at a really young age, you know, 14, 15, 16, and understanding that we all come in this life with a little bit of baggage. Even Tom was bullied and, you know, he says he has a great childhood and you did. But you also had the crap kicked out of you for a couple summers that yeah. made you hate bullies. I was which going, I think, yeah, I was going to my know. parents and you know and thought with, oh, my family life was great. But yeah. I mean, even in my book, I talk about getting beat up 
almost every day in the summer by the same two kids just had fun with me. And I did nothing about it. Yeah. Until you did. <laughs> but those decisions you talked about in life, you know, what what path do we take? There's two, love or fear. Love or fear. How are you going to lead? How are you going to operate? How are you going to work? How are you going to communicate, you know, with love or with fear? Absolutely. Well, in the book, you talk about your brother showing up in that case of the bullying. Um and, you know, shows, I love the way you phrase it, you'd seen the bully on their back. And I think that's, you know, a real, a really powerful metaphor for leadership. Um, and, you know, obviously that then gave you the courage to address the bully yourself the next time. And, you know, I think, again, that facade that everyone else, I suffer for that. I've done martial arts my whole life. I've done strength and conditioning my whole life. And I still feel like I'm the biggest pussy in the entire world. <laughs> so that little little internal voice, you know, is, is constantly chipping away. But as a tangent, you refer to the time of your birth as around the long, hot summer of 67. I'd never heard of that time. But my God, you talk about history repeating itself. There were race riots and the beginning of the Vietnam War. So if you're able to expand from what you heard about that time, because that seems to mirror exactly what we've gone through the last year and a half. You know, how many times do you have to tell people, nations, you know, you study history or you'll repeat it. Understand what it is you're learning, you know, understand the why in things versus just taking in information. Yeah, okay, okay, okay. You know, without doing any research yourself, and then you're just you're just propaganda. But if you understand the why behind things, I've learned so much. Um, you know, my co-author Steve Jackson pulled those lines out and I started, I myself wasn't aware of a lot going on when I was born, obviously. And I people don't look back at the year I was born. What happened? Um, when he did that, I was like, man, what a crazy mirror image of what I had done. I mean, he brought, he did such a good job of bringing that in. You know, had I read the book myself, it would have been like, I was born, I went to school, I went to the army and then I died one day, maybe, but you know, in order. And he brought it and moved things around and brought it and put it in order that made it interesting, which man was so appreciated by me for sure that um when he brought that up i was like wow i was learning things as a child that i probably didn't know you know you're always picking up on things you're always aware of your environment and as children we're, we're sucking that all in you know we don't know it till later and we don't know it later unless we actually understand that man what we see and observe on tv what we hear all, all day long on the radio or the news makes us who we are Right. We learn all day long and, and we become and shift. Right. We shift. Well, some people shift all the time who they are. Right. Other people are determining who they want to become and then you follow a good path. Um, but, yeah, it was such a mirror of the riots, the race riots, the things that went on, then the war, the long drawn out, how, how veterans feel. Right. And then this Afghanistan stuff happens and you start hearing, oh, what are veterans feeling now? I'm like, man, this is a a resurgence that's actually been a resurgence of Vietnam veterans having trauma and, and complaining now because here we are again right now their traumas kicked back up so now we have all these people who might have been doing okay for a bit you know this so many years later getting past it and now this kicks up again and it, and it stirs it all back up for them again you know we begin a lot everyone. of different messages well yeah, everyone but yeah typically I don't get messages from Vietnam vets that often um, it's been more lately because of all this always is there. If it's not dealt with, it's always going to be there. Yeah. Well, I want to get to um, Mogadishu in a little bit, 
pure, uh, partly not because I'm like, oh, tell me about what it was like. What was it like killing people? All the, the questions that we don't want to get as responders or military, but because I've had several members that were there already on the show. So it'd be interesting to get your perspective. But one of them was Richard Rice, a fellow Delta member. And uh, I'm actually sitting down with him again and um, Jason McCarthy. And Jason's a, a Green Beret from you know the Middle East era and, and Richard is a Vietnam vet. So I think Mogadishu was his last um, you know, combat mission, if I'm not mistaken. So it'll be interesting to get that. But I mean, that's that's what I'm seeing, and I hear as well a lot of the you know the 22 a day kind of numbers that we hear throw around. A lot of those are Vietnam vets that transitioned into some sort of employment that kept their mind busy, and now they're at retirement age, and now we're seeing a, a big uptick. Is that what you're seeing through your eyes too? They don't really. Well, I don't. We don't get into the age as much, but we know a little bit is that that just the loss of purpose. You know, I'm out of a job now, and then people. Some people don't do good with retirement, like retirement meaning doing nothing. Most people, most and, humans and, don't. Right. <laughs> no, and we're not veterans when they sit there and and they think, oh, I can't do anything. Everyone starts to feel worthless, and when you start feeling worthless, you worthless, you start losing hope. I mean, when I almost took my own life, it was the same thing. I'm I'm in the way. I don't want to be that guy that's in the way, man. I, I was the guy that wanted to help people. So the quiet space it, is dangerous. The quiet yeah. space is dangerous. And then the fact that we're being more vocal about mental health. We did a speak engagement. Was it two years ago now? And when I got done, these kids were coming up to me. Hey, come speak to my grandfather. You know, and I get up and there's some there's some grandkids. There's some kids and there's a the grandfather who fought in the Battle of the Bulge. We sat at the table and cried. And, and the grandkids like, well, I never knew. And the kids like, we never knew, you know, and grandpa never shared anything until that night. And then he said he was going to go get help the next day. And then a Vietnam vet came over and started crying with us. Me too. You know, it's like, I said, gentlemen, as long the length of time that you wait to get help is the length of time you could possibly be suffering. So why wait 80 years to go get help? Why wait 60 years to go get help? You know, why not go get it right away and then live those years better? Live those years with the tools that you've learned on how to get past trauma and to stay active in some way you, you have, know, to have to stay to active keep, whether it's giving back or just volunteering you know. gosh taking an online course just humans really aren't built to do nothing it's not biologically emotionally spiritually intellectually we're not meant to sit you know so it's not really good for anyone especially people who have suffered trauma so keeping busy you know, not busy to be busy, but busy to stay involved in your life in some regard is is critical. It's almost like transitioning out of law enforcement or military again. It's that transition again. Um, and so the more you can be prepared for it, even Tom will talk to the guys and they're like, I can't wait to go fishing. Tom's like, yeah, I used to say that too, but I didn't fish ever in my life. So <laughs> like, you know, like these ideas, I think, oh, I'm going to travel all the time and I'll talk to the guys and I'm like, oh, where do you want to travel? He's like, I don't know. I really don't even like traveling that much or people. I'm like, you need to find something you're going to like to do in this time um, or want to take up for sure. Absolutely. Well, I want to get to the transition in a bit as well, because I think that is a, a huge element in, in so many professions, because we identify as the soldier, the firefighter, the cop. And if you don't have that other tribe, that other identity, or reclaim your true identity, which is the individual, then it can be crippling. Um, when we're on the topic, though, and I'm curious to get your perspectives on this, through my eyes, and there's this this term toxic mas masculinity which i think is you know the way it's being presented is bullshit personally but um where i think that actually applies much better is 
men's perspective of what a man is supposed to be like. And I think that through Hollywood, especially through that kind of storytelling, we've allowed John Wayne and all these people to dictate what masculinity is, where the reality is the compassion and kindness that took you into the military, law enforcement, fire, um, is the, you know, the yang of the complete individual. So through that lens, what is, do you see that a lot of men and women, but especially men struggle because they almost buy into a facade of what a man is supposed to be like? A little bit. I'm, I'm going to lean in a little bit and say every day of my life. It's, um, I lived it. It's recruiting. I call it recruiting. That's what we tell ourselves to go out the door. That's what we tell ourselves to kick in the front door, to rush into the door and go do our jobs. You know, I'm invincible. I'm highly trained. You know, plus I was young at the time and I full of testosterone. I want to go test my metal like all uh, young warriors do, all tribesmen do when they come of age. You know, I want to test my metal or when you're trained to do something. You're trained to fight a fire. You're trained to be law enforcement and enforce the law and you're trained to shoot a weapon. You want to go see if you can do it, right? You, nobody wants to die. Nobody, I hope, wants to really just kill people. But when that's your job and you're saying, I want to go do my job, I want to, I've been training for years, right? Every day for years of shooting and moving and communicating and running indoors and it's paper, paper, it's real, it's simunitions and paintballs and when's it going to be real? When am I going to do my job? And then you get to do your job and you're like, oh shit, <laughs> that's some scary shit and I could have died or, or, you know, eight of my friends died or something or 19 of them got killed and, and that was my first one. So it's... If you hold on to that forever and you don't mature to a level of, I get it, I get I needed that motivation, you know, like I said, I call it recruiting, to get in the door and go do my job. Like we work ourselves up, we talk ourselves into doing things. If you literally believe that, and it surprises me every day I get messages, thank you for what you wrote today, thank you for your post today or your video today. Wow, you guys admit that you're not, you know, gods or you, you know, you actually can get hurt. It, it really helps the rest of us. And, I, and, I, and I'm, I'm glad. But did you really believe that? Did you really believe we're invincible? I mean, I believed it until I saw a friend of mine get shot in the head across the street with a plastic helmet on. I'm like, okay, everything's changed now. We're not invincible. Wow. Um, shit. Right. I'm, I'm in the middle of this now. And I just realized for the first time, sadly, I'm not really invincible. I could die. But the armor that you had to the put on. The armor that you're on for that. all those years and the toxic, well, okay, we already yeah. talked about it being toxic, but hanging around the same type of people and trying to be the same. Yeah. It's like football <laughs> players on a football team. Who wants to look weak, right? It's you're fighting for your job, your position, and any weakness means the new kid's going to get it. So you have to act like you're ready to do your job all the way until you're not doing your job anymore or someone else is going to take your position. So yeah, it's a it's a mask that gets thicker and thicker and thicker. And then sometimes you take it off and there's still a mask on, you don't even know it. And then you rip that mask off, and you realize, oh, there's another one. Who am I anymore? Right? We don't know until we do the self-assessment, the self-awareness, and the honest answer to the hard questions that we ask ourselves. You know, what is it really? I was raised holding doors for women, and you know, and now some women get mad at that. Whatever. It doesn't make me mad. I was raised that way. Sorry. You, you don't like doors being held for you? I'd be happy to slam it in your face or not hold it for you. I, that's what I know. That's what I do. Um, and I tell everyone, just 
just be kind to each other, right? If you're just kind to each other, I don't care if you're a man or a woman, yeah. and you're polite and do kind things, you can still be a man, right? Guys, well, I'm physically stronger. Okay, there's women out there that are physically stronger than me. There's, <laughs> you're always going to have someone that can do something better than you. So just in general, I think rules to follow, man, woman, whatever, are to be loving and kind to each other and patient and understanding. Because as soon as we're not, conflict. And as soon as conflict happens, I know all I want to do is win. And I'll do anything to win through my training. Right? So... The person, whoever you're going against, probably the same way. They want to win, too. So I'm trying to win and they're trying to win. What's losing? The whole situation is losing. Well, I'll say, I know you're speaking directly more about the, you know, wanting to test your mettle and kind of the macho mindset that has to go into that. Mm -hmm. Even the women soldiers that, you know, I worked alongside Tom for about three, three and a half years, the women soldiers were the same way, very tough, very masculine, you know, kind of went into the same mindset. And you have to go into that place. I totally get that and respect that to a certain degree, because it's about survival at that point in time. And it's a survival mindset, right? But at the same time, I'm standing there having a commander, you know, I'm in front of a group of maybe 15 young SEALs, they're young, 24, 25, 26 years old. And here their leader, who's maybe in his 40s, is saying, you're not a real operator until you're on wife two or three. You know, that's toxic to me because Those you're jokes. selling a narrative yeah. that's going to get these guys killed. And you might go, oh, well, what do you mean they're going to be distracted overseas? No, we know that veteran suicide. And when we look at the numbers and statistics is that generally it's happening after a family disturbance, a divorce, being caught in an affair. That's when people are pulling the trigger. So we know that um, statistically, it's not Jim is sitting there thinking about what happened in Iraq. It's Jim got caught on his third affair. His wife is leaving, taking the kids, the dog, and packing up. And he said, that's enough. You know, we know that that's the narrative, more cases than not. So the toxic behavior of cheat, who cares? You're a warrior. Have as many girlfriends as you want. Who cares? You're a warrior. This is what we do. Um, we drink, we drive, we, who cares, go 200 miles down the, the street. This is what we do. An hour. I've been 200 miles before. Yeah, I didn't realize that was bad. <laughs> yeah, it's like an airplane, but the, you know, the aggressive behavior, the fighting at bars, like that to me, you know, I, I don't know about testing your metal. I never had to do that or, you know, was never in that position, but I definitely saw that the masks and the armor that were put on to either avoid dealing with the trauma, avoid dealing with the grief and sorrow of loss, or just trying to get yourself, like Tom said, out the door and be confident enough to do that, the baggage that comes with that of the reckless behavior, it's deadly. What it's you deadly. said about always feeling like a pussy, almost every person, I could probably say every person in the unit that I spoke to and, and in conversation, have said the exact same thing. I never felt good enough in comparison to everyone else there. I never felt good enough. Everyone I talked to, I didn't feel good enough. We don't feel worthy of being where we're at. So we work harder to stay there. We're all fearful of losing our jobs. Everyone talks about swiping your card to get in the gate. Dang, it's green. Okay, that's the gate. Now you got to get in the door to the bay. Green. Now you got to get out the door to the bay to the hallway to go eat breakfast. Green. You know, now you got to get into breakfast. One point that thing could turn red and you're locked out of everything because of something you did. 
And everyone talks about that fear. And so that drive of I'm not good enough to make you better and keep you competitive also destroys everybody and gives them that muscle memory thought of I'm not good enough. And so they put on that mask of, yeah, oh yeah, that that fake bravado, that masculinity culture of, you know, that's the mask that we put on to, to, to look to others like, I'm not afraid, right? In that shark pool of sharks that we live in, that that becomes our muscle memory when we get out and we speak to civilians that way who aren't used to that. And it sounds a whole lot different and more rude. It's a little bit. And, and then we spend years <laughs> going, I didn't mean that. I just, that's just how I talk. And so we hear... It's not what you say, it's the delivery. Basically, we're assholes because we've had to live around assholes for 20, 30 years. And now it's our muscle memory behavior. Well, I think as well, one one area where it gets confused through at least what I've seen as a firefighter is and, and there's a good you know, kind of parallel with the sporting community. We need to have that flow state when we're you know, when, when we're running into danger, whether it's in the military, whether it's running to a building, you know, a child trapped in a car, whatever it is. And at that moment, yeah, that is, you know, you need to have that calm mind. You need to have that high level of training. You need to have that stress. That's where all those come together. But I think where we fail is after that's happened, understanding it's okay to be moved, crushed, whatever it is, by what you just did or what you just saw. Yeah. We, it's okay not to be it's okay. It's okay not to be okay is what we tell <laughs> everybody. Because right. they're fighting. I feel like crap. It's okay. Or you shouldn't feel that way, or I'm ashamed of the emotional status that I'm in or right now because, honestly, biologically, we are built to respond empathetically or with compassion or with understanding because that's how we survived. That's how our ancestors survived was to be in a tribe, was to be in a group of people. So if you don't, if you're telling me, Jen, I don't care what I just saw or did. I just, I'm a firefighter. I, that's what I do. I'm going to say, then you're not a human being. Because biologically, you're built a certain way. I understand your job description, but you can't fight biology. You just can't. The awareness helps. Um, our counselor talks about it. When we, came, when we came out of the caves, we walked out of the cave and we're looking around. Is that a snake or a stick? Right? Survival is, that's a snake, right? And then you walk up and find out it's a stick later. Okay, well, I still survive. So we always go to the worst case. Our minds always go to the negative. You know, a thousand positive things happen and one negative Survival. Straight to the negative survival. Um, so we have to be aware of that when we communicate with others, and that takes a lot of self awareness. Absolutely. Well, I want to walk you both through your kind of career paths because obviously, eventually, they intersect. Um, so we'll start with you, Tom. As I mentioned, Richard Rice, you know, Somalia was his last um, combat deployment, from what I'm aware. That's a pretty shitty deployment to have as your first. So I know you, you entered, you know, the army and then special forces and then ultimately Delta. So kind of walk me through that and then what that day looked like through your eyes. Yeah, I, uh, I moved up pretty quick when the army, you know, I didn't know where I was going. I was in Germany as a regular army guy. Um, hated it. Made my way to SF, made my way to the unit and. I had a little less than two years in the unit before Somalia kicked off. And so that second year, we were training for Somalia pretty much all year. I mean, we knew it was going down. We just didn't know when our leaders were going to decide to send us. So we were rehearsing with like one ranger company and then would switch over and then swap out. Another ranger company would come in. So I think in the end, they actually did a swap before we even deployed. And during that train up, I should have I should have picked up on some things, you know, other than being young and not in charge of anything. And 
just run around and break stuff and shoot people. I was like, yes. And you know, all that train up was exciting that whole year. I mean, we've had a, we had a helicopter crash during the train up that kind of freaked me out that blue ride. I mean, it didn't freak me out. It went right over my head. It's exciting. You know, there's some pilots that are okay, but they, we crashed. Pilots are fine. Right. We're all good. So that was my, that's what combat is. People shoot at each other. You know, we win and we go home and we high five and tell the stories. You know, those first five missions before, Three October were kind of like that. Uh, most were boring, you know, exciting at first, and then nothing happens, and then oh, somebody's shooting over the head, oh, somebody's shooting towards us, and this is combat, you know. Maybe a guy got injured over here, and it's like okay, we're all good, but man, we were we're here to laugh about it. And then three October was a smack in the face for me, you know. It was one of those instantly under heavy fire before I'm even on the ground. On the radio, you hear somebody fell out of the radio, Blackburn. I'm like, what? And now I'm on the rope going down, and I got to deal with what I'm doing. And we're lost. We're outside the perimeter because of the brownout and the firefight going on. So we're just taking down houses along the way to try to figure out and get off the street, you know? So now we're dealing with families who aren't bad, who are terrified. Next family who's not bad. Make our way down the street to get to the target. And then they hand off all these detainees, and I'm dealing with those, and gunfire's getting heavier. And then a five ton truck blows up outside. I'm like, Still cracking jokes like, hey, uh, you think we'll make it for dinner, man? You know, because I'm hungry and everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, joking was my was my fear kind of relief. You know, my my stress relief was cracking jokes and everybody knew it. And I'm, I'm carrying a sack of Somalia money, man. It's probably worth two dollars, but it's a whole garbage bag full of money. I'm going to bring it back. Look what I got. And when I looked up. And saw a helicopter. I heard an RPG and I looked up and saw it hit the helicopter and it's spinning out of control to the to the northeast. I was like. Oh, man, I knew that that was we had to go there now. Right. I knew that we weren't going back. I took that money and I threw it in a sewer hole. I started slashing tires on the cars at the courtyard we were in so we wouldn't be followed. And, and I, they, they changed the mission. And I still hadn't seen anyone that I knew get shot or injured. It was all over here and there. And you heard about it. And then I remember a ranger leaning up against the metal fence as we're getting ready to get up and go find this crash site, his neck just explodes and, and he falls over. And I'm like, just one bullet hole through the, through the gate, you know, just a random, I don't even know who did it, you know? Um, and I was like, all right. And I just switched to, there was no more joking. It was straight up fear and action for me. Like, wow. Like, all right, line up on the streets. We're going to move out. And I'm like, all right, we just lined up on the street. Like we do in training. You know, there was still no, I don't want to say purpose, but fear really in me of, of get moving and look out until we started crossing intersections. And as soon as we cross the intersection, you hear the popping. It's like, I know what that is. You know, AK-47 rounds going over your head really closely. And you'd look and there'd be hundreds of people running at you, shooting and mixed with civilians. And, and we started dealing with that on our way. And then we finally turned the corner two and a half blocks down the, the road to, to go two more blocks north at the crash site. And that's when I saw Earl shooting up the street and I was shooting up the street and I just looked back he was being drugged away seconds later and I had no idea if injured or dead I just I just assumed injury um and found out he was instantly killed shot in the head um and that's kind of where they held up all night they started taking injuries there they were taking more on the west side of the street I think or the east side of the street maybe due to the sun maybe we were shaded more on the east side of the street as we moved north and and when we got to the crash site it just I mean that's when all hell really broke loose. And it was, it was take down the house that I would be in all night, try to secure that corner. 
And then now everyone knows where you're at, the entire town. And by the way, back then we had the little birds overhead trying to help, which is a beacon to the rest of the city where to go, right? Which we learned that day. It's like flying a banner. Hey, right here, Americans are right here, right underneath us. But we needed them there, you know, to keep the, the, the hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people away. And that's where the 18 hours started of all night. The house being picked apart by RPGs, watching a friend of mine get hit with an RPG and knocked out. Nothing wrong with them, too. Rangers getting blown up and saving their lives. And then, you know, the things I've had to deal with, with guys low crawling up to your house and trying to actually get within inches of you and kill you versus I'm dominant when I'm kicking the door and I'm coming to you. Right. That's me. I'll come into your bedroom and wake you up. I don't care. But when they're doing it to us, it's a whole nother ball game. You know, they just kept coming in it. I remember one point in the night I asked my team leader. I hear the I hear the uh, the convoy trying to get to us with the 50 cows and I could hear the heavy volume of gunfire. And I asked him, are, are they going to make it? And his answer was, I don't know. And he turned and walked away. And I'm like, that was a good time for a motivational speech, you know. And uh, that that continued all night until the morning when it was okay, climbing the back of the vehicle, open it up, and they pull the door shut. There's no room in the end, man. There's no room to get in that vehicle. And there's never been no room in a vehicle. There was no room in that vehicle. And it was like, okay, make a quick plan. We'll run alongside the vehicles to get out of here. And as soon as the first shots fired, those vehicles took off. And we were like, all right, well, I guess we'll just run. And thus the Mogadishu mile run um, of literally I'm out of ammo, picking up magazines on the ground, knocking the dirt out of it, you know, putting it in your weapon and shooting two or three until it's out. Thinking I should have brought, I mean, I, man, I was, I was self-correcting the whole way. I can't believe I didn't bring water. I can't believe I didn't bring my night vision. I can't believe... We only carry a, a 210 rounds each. <laughs> Obviously, you run out of weight and ability to carry, but I broke that whole night down as it went along. And as the, the point on my night when they resupplied us with some ammo and water and it exploded in the streets and it was hard to, to use was, was the, I think, the moment my switch flipped in life where I lost empathy, compassion, love. And I decided, I didn't decide, it just happened that the rest of my life is going to be dedicated to making sure this never happens again. I will be trained, so highly trained that this will never happen again. And of course, that never happens, right? It happened again, kind of. But, you know, that's the thought process. I think that's the day that my life changed, you know. And, and people ask, when you saw Black Hawk Down, what's the movie like? I'm like, I learned more about that night watching that movie and wondering, is that true? Because you see this. I see exactly what's in front of me when I'm doing my fearful moments, you know, my drama, my trauma, and everything's right here. And I see this movie of Rangers, and I'm like, were they laughing? Were they having fun down the street? Were they was the jokes? And I get it. That's part of it. But I had no idea any of that had happened until I saw the movie. And that's the, uh, that's the sectioning of combat for people. I've seen people, he's lying about that. He's lying about that. And I realized... You don't know, man. All you can tell is your story. You know, that's all you see in combat mostly. Well, it's so powerful, and thank you. I, I had Mike Duran on here. I had Matt Eversman. Um, and Matt, in the first conversation, he talked about the similar thing. I think I want to say it was really, really hot, so they removed some of body armor and, like you said, the water supply. And to take, you know, lessons learned, I think that's where the ultimate humility comes in. Like, okay... This is where we found ourselves. Let's learn from it rather than shove it under the carpet, which we see a lot. Um, you know, is is so important for 
other professions to hear, whether it's military or the first responders, that, you know, the the preparation, the training, the checking your equipment, all those things. I mean, when it's your worst day, it's too late at that point, you know, you, you, all you've got is regret. So, um, you know, I think it's a powerful story. So I appreciate you, you know, sending your mind back there again, because I know it can't be easy. So thank you. No, thank you. It's, uh, you know, when I started to do this, I couldn't do it. And it's been very cathartic. The more I do it, the more I recall, the better I feel about it, the more I can get through it without being overly emotional. You know, it's more of a looking back on it now versus living in it. Well, Jen, let's kind of walk you through um, how you found yourself in videography. Well, it, it's funny because I was actually visiting. My dad had surgery. I was visiting him yesterday and my daughter just started high school. She's a freshman and we're talking about life and, you know, she's talking about, I want to join the FBI or CIA and kind of, you know, going down the route. <laughs> Tom's head is going back to the audience. It's going to know. Um, but, you know, we talked about high school and Claudia said, well, what did you want to do? And I said, I either wanted to be a National Geographic photographer or filmmaker. I wanted to be an anthropologist or archaeologist. And so I've always had this fascination with subcultures and also photography and film. And so really, I spent about 15 years working in advertising, traditional film photography, making TV commercials, things like that. So um, really, until I was about 35, I had very little experience with military and, and really, thank God I didn't have any experiences really with first responders. Um, so, you know, I... I didn't have a great sense and I was asked to come um, come along and film with these guys and I said no. I said I don't know anything about special operations. I think somebody else can do that job better than me. I can even recommend some folks that also shoot action at that time. I was doing a lot of sports marketing so I was shooting action um, and that, this guy's like nope I know you can shoot action. You can shoot high speed. Um, you could shoot low light. So you're coming on this one. I've already told them you're coming. And then if you don't want to do another one, you obviously don't have to. He was a former ranger. So, you know, how that goes. So, you know, I went along. Um, I usually am really good about researching my clients before I get involved. And for some reason, I was just checked out. I wasn't invested. I think I was kind of going like an like a disgruntled teenager or something like fine dad, I'll go, but not happy about it. And I'll never forget. They were walking me down the hallway, another former unit member. And he said, you're, have you seen Black Hawk Down? And I'm like, Oh God, no. I'm like that movie played over and over again when I worked at the small design shop in St. Louis. So I've never really seen it, but I used to hear it at work all the time because the guys were obsessed with it. And he's like, oh, well, you're about ready to go meet two of the guys that fought that battle. And I was like, oh, okay. And I said, so what, they're SEALs? <laughs> and he stopped in the hallway <laughs> and he turned around and he goes, what did you say? I'm like, he said, they're Delta Force. And I go, yeah, that's like a SEAL, right? And he was like, okay, you need to do some homework. Look up Delta Force and, and you know, figure out who they are and just keep your mouth shut when you go into this room and I'm like, all right, um, met Tom and, you know, neither of us were really impressed with each other. I think neither of us really remembered each other. Uh, much she had from good the reason. She had good reason not to be impressed <laughs> with me. 
You yeah, you were at pretty much bottom. Maybe not rock bottom, I but was, pretty close. I was digging my hole and getting it real deep. <laughs> at that time. Ready. Yeah, for sure. But honestly, I, I ended up maybe it was benefit that I didn't know. I was working with a bunch of former unit guys and SF guys and really understand who they were because I was bossing them around the whole weekend. Like, you need we need a reshoot. We need to do this. We need to I wanted maybe, to kill her. <laughs> y'all wanted to kill me and it's like four in the morning we're like why are we doing this for the fifth time and i mean honestly we aren't getting paid we're doing it to help another guy out to film this and i had we had never filmed before nobody said we're going to do 20 takes of everything until it's perfect (laughs) well okay we'll we'll do it they're like do it again like do it again do it again we're like seriously and at four in the morning we're like all right somebody's gonna die soon yep not really, but really, yeah, yeah. No, close. <laughs> back to my crew up after a while, but I, you know, talked to the guy who introduced me and he said, I also do RMTs. And I said, what's that realistic military training exercises? Okay. What's that? It's like, basically before, you know, the guys go overseas, they're going to practice that mission and they do it really, really large scale, helicopters, building takedowns, you know, law enforcement's involved. Everyone, there's all these players, there's role players. I'm like, I want to go see that. And I go and film that. And he's like, well, no, you can't go film a special operations, you know, training mission. And I said, okay, but you know, like I, I've done work with St. Louis Cardinals and I know they film everything and then they review every single play and every single move. It might be beneficial for you guys during these exercises to have me come follow along and film and then you can review your place essentially and he's like that's kind of a good idea i'll I'll bring you on the next one so i show up to this mission um it was a ranger uh exercise and they're like here's tom he's gonna be your point of contact and he's gonna walk you through the mission you'll you'll stay with him and one was all it took because I'm like, holy shit, like who gets to see this stuff? Like there's Blackhawks right above my head. You know, these guys are fast roping nearly on top of me. There's building takes down. There's 50 different role players, you know, who are speaking in the native language. who are building fires and tents and doing all these things. I'm like, who gets to see this stuff? Like, I want to be part of this. I had my card deleted <laughs> at the end of the night by command. They're like, yeah, who are you? And you shouldn't be filming anything. Um, so it took a few times for people to get used to me being there. Um, like, I don't know. I don't think anybody. Every time. <laughs> every time. <laughs> You're got, not supposed to be filming. What, what, what changed was her? Guys coming in. Hey, you know, SEALs, what are you doing here? And before she'd be like, I'm sorry. You know, and after so many times, she, she realized I belong here. You know, I'm being paid to be here to do my job. So I'm going to do my job. And some grumpy seal walk up to her. What are you doing? You can't be filming. This is a secret room. She's like, all right, here we go again. That's my job. Come on, I'm going to show you the commander. She goes, let's go. You know? <laughs> they go storming down the hall, walking. Commander, sir, she's been videoing. Hey, Jen, how you doing? He's like, oh, you know each other. She's like, yeah, we know each other. <laughs> Fucking job. It's like, yeah, take her wherever she wants to go. And he's like. It was a grumpy, okay. it was a grumpy walk back <laughs> to uh, the talk, but. You know, yeah, I I loved it. I did it for about three and a half years. And I feel like that I didn't really understand why I was there. You know, it was one of those like, this is really odd. I'm a stranger in a strange land. I love it, but it's it's very different. And I think I started to realize 
I'm here and I'm seeing this stuff. I'm, I'm really getting into the soup with these guys so that I can help them when they get back home. Like I, I really started to feel like I need to put the camera down. I'm done with this part of it. I've seen too much. I've heard too much. My heart's been broken too many times. Um, there have been help. several deaths. So people weren't returning to the next year's training event that she had known and got to know by talking to them while sitting on target 15 hours at a time, they start sharing their, life stories you know and it was like oh so she gets to know she started helping them and she became that den mom that everyone would come talk to and share their stories and i need help with my wife and my kids and she'd talk to them about it for hours and they wouldn't come back she'd go looking for them and they were found out they were killed and then you know a couple of training deaths and 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 one day she's she says uh i can't do this anymore i don't know how you do it but what i want to do is help them when they're done so I'm going to get to work on that. We're going to, you know, we're going to do this now. So I was like, okay, yes, dear. <laughs> Smart man. <laughs> so what I want to bring, you know, Tom up to as far as as his journey as well. There's a book, I mean, excuse me, there's a book. There's a, a photo in the book and I forget the exact kind of, um, in a comment underneath, but you've referred to the look in your eyes and about being rock bottom. I have a photo with a friend of mine, Chad, who I ended up writing his story, a kind of, pseudonym version of his story in the book that I wrote and we had just finished a CrossFit workout unbeknownst to me he was in the same place as you were and then finally you know, I was able to find out and someone commented on Facebook that guy looks like he's seen some shit and that person had no idea but actually that was exactly what it was and he had a you know horrendous sexual abuse as a child he was a fi- uh, he was a, a ranger went through ranger school never actually deployed um and then went to the fire service. And when I finally kind of had my intervention with him, he had been through addiction counseling twice, was about to go to a rehab one more time. He said, James, if this doesn't work, I'm done. And he was going to stick a gun in his mouth. So that picture immediately resonated with me. So, you know, we talked about coming back from Somalia, kind of walk me through where you started noticing or maybe people around you, which is a very important part of this conversation, started noticing you spiraling down and then, and then, you know, your darkest point. And then we'll talk about in the post-traumatic growth, which I think is so important in this conversation. I think I did 18 more years in the unit after Samoya. Um, no, you were 25 or six during. Yeah. And I spent 18 more years after Samoya trying to never repeat that, but I would never repeat it because I was not in charge of anybody. My next combat, um, and not to talk about, not even to talk about the Singleton missions or the, the two guys going somewhere, spooky, terrifying things that you just get through. You're like, oh my God. Um, but combat, I was in charge, my next combat in Iraq. And it was very different being in charge of other souls being responsible for their lives. I mean, you always say that brothers to my left and right, but when you're in charge of a troop and you go out with all the attachments of that troop, you know, the tank, two tanks, two Bradleys, oh, the Ranger company that comes with you, oh, the platoon that comes with you, and oh, by the way, all your men and all the enablers and everyone, assets, you're responsible for them. And if, if, if the plan's horrible and something goes wrong, man, that's, that's the rest of your life of, I made a mistake. And that's my fault. And that that's that survivor's guilt or just guilt, period. Knock on wood, I, I didn't have but one event that, that affected me, you know, 
in that time. And that was the event. They're like, here we go again. Another Blackhawk shot down. I'm on target. I'm in charge this time. Shit, shit, shit. You, you literally know, had to call Blackhawk I down. had to call. <laughs> we, yeah. And when you're in charge of other people's lives and it's a mistake, that is so much heavier. That was so much heavier for me. And I don't even think that I, I think that was one of my first realizations of I'm, I don't have this shit down was when I had to evacuate another person off that target for, um, over medicating sleep medications, you know, on target. Cause they were out talking to a cow. I, I, and, and I, you know, I think dehydration at the time I put them in with the individual who got blown up by the suicide bomber in the room next to me, you know, while I'm on the radio talking and I go look in the room and I see pills everywhere, you know, and I'm like, I, I thought I was being a good leader by staying away and letting them have their private time versus checking on them. And so that started taking a toll that I, I had allowed that to happen. And I don't pick, I didn't pick up on any other. I didn't feel I was messed up. I felt like I was just living my life, doing the warrior things. And we tell people all the time, we don't we don't tell people, we don't come in and say, listen, guys, here are the signs and symptoms of post-traumatic stress because it's it looks just like your lifestyle. It's just like the lifestyle that I had been living my entire life. So while I'm in, I, I'm thinking, this is what we do, man. We party hard. We, we have a great time. We work hard, you know, and we're proud of it, man. And we're rude and direct and we're fair, but man, you know, and it's, and until I, I, until that day, that short drive, that two block drive from that working event to the parking garage at the hotel, I was just using humor and alcohol to, to keep going. And I don't know what happened that day. I, I was done. I, I, I thought this shit's stupid. I'm in the way. This is bullshit. And I was getting a divorce. My kid wasn't talking to me. I thought I'm just, I'm, I'm in the way. I spent my entire career fixing or removing problems and I couldn't fix myself. Of course, at the time I hadn't tried to fix myself. Sure. I can't fix myself. I didn't do anything to try to fix myself. But my thought was, that's eh, easier just to remove me. And, and I, I just wanted to end it that day because it was so, it came on so fast that I don't know that I still realized then the, the depth of my issues. You know, and then and then Jen stopped me from killing myself. And I, we didn't even know each other really then. And um, and it was just because she noticed something. And so she texted me. And, and then until later, maybe my wedding night, did I realize how deep down this rabbit hole I had gone and was lying about it or hiding from it or, or just denying it. I don't know. And that's the that's the next morning after my wedding, because that night I wasn't in the right mind to even think of anything. That next morning, I think I woke up. Well, I was woken up by her telling me she was leaving. And then I think I started to wake up thinking, here I am again. I'm the common denominator. So my self-awareness kicked in. After three other divorces, I just got married looking at a fourth. Actually, I think it just ripped the paperwork up and there was no nothing involved. We hadn't turned it into the you know, the courthouse. So really, it didn't, it didn't exist. And I thought, man, I'm the common denominator. I'm, the, you know, I'm the only one that's been there in all three, four of these marriages, and and every shitty situation in my life, I'm always there. So I'm the only one with control. And I slowly started to wake up, and I, I think that's the morning I went to anger management counseling that next week. 
Which was profound, honestly, you because... Know, the guy was, uh, yeah. I don't know who, uh, Eric Alice Clapton's, Cooper, somebody crazy. Alex, uh, no, Eric Clapton. Eric Clapton's anger management guy. And <laughs> he substance abuse told guy, yeah. me a lot. And what he told me was, you have post-traumatic stress. And I went, huh? Well, the yeah, imagine said, that. The shrink said I didn't. <laughs> so I thought, good to go. You know, well, the shrink said that, so they wouldn't have to pay me disability. Um he said, well, no, you pretty much have it full bore, man. You are about to, you know, die. And so I got to work on that one, that one symptom, right, of post-traumatic stress, not realizing there was more. And Jen saw his change. And then she tried some more. And then she went to school to be a health uh, coach and then fed me differently, gave me nutrition, changed my mindset, changed how I felt about myself made me go to transcendental meditation and all this crap. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> TM at this. And I just kept going and going. And every time I went, I'm like, I feel better. I feel better. And I behaved differently. And then it was finally when we found our fourth therapist that we stuck with her and it worked so well that we, we, we basically, Jen's like, we got to bring this to everybody. We got to bring your journey, my journey, how we got better to everybody, and what we found, honestly, is that everybody needs what we went through. They're begging for it. They want help with their relationship, and why is he such an ass, you know? And I don't understand it, and if we both understand it, we can help each other. So that's how, you know, that's how that was born. That was, uh, that was me realizing, I guess, the day, and the long answer of when did you realize was, uh, I kept kicking it down the road. You know, like most people do. And eh, now I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Here's an incident. I'm sorry. Here's an incident. I'm sorry. You know, like most guys, hey, we need to go get counseling. Let's go get some marriage therapy. That's eh, crap. We know what our problem is. No, no. Another fight. We need to go to therapy. And eh, 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 I'm leaving this house and this relationship unless you get some help. Oh, OK, I'll get some help. You know, why wait that long? That's 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 kind of our thing now. Why wait as long as I waited? I think that's the mis conception that people will have is, you know, even people that have read Tom's book was, okay, yeah, you're rock bottom, you hit it, your wedding night, yep, that was pretty awful, I, I got you, and then you started to get better. It was really two years after that, that he wasn't faking it, right? The fake it till you make it. So he was showing up to therapy, he was showing up to transcendental meditation appointments, he was you know, kind of starting to eat better, but still drinking the bar dry at night. So he kind of had one toe in and the rest of him was still out of this picture because he felt like admitting he had PTS was a sign of weakness still at that point, very much so. So when I would say things like you clearly have PTS because, you know, dude, I can Google and I'm looking at this page and like out of the 10 symptoms, you have like 36. They're not even on here. So like, clearly you have this. And he's like, nope, not me. Even the shrink said I didn't have it. And I'm like, no, this this isn't right. You know, this this diagnosis you were given of you're all clear, good to go was like you said that that was just to get some disability payments knocked off. But it was two years after the wedding night before he really decided, I think you had to decide like, OK, I am worth saving I knew he was worth saving, but he still at that point didn't think he was worthy of. If you can think saved. of the I'm her protector. I hate bullies. I'm her abuser. You know, guys deal with it every day. Everybody I talk to, all my friends, people I don't know, everybody. 
I come home and bring this horrible monster to my family that I want to protect. And that shame, the shame that piles on, I'm sorry. And then you do it again. I'm sorry. You know, and you do it again. I'm sorry. And then after a while, I'm going to say, I'm sorry. We're so stupid. Then it's hard to love yourself. Um, When you don't love yourself, you can't love anyone else. So I want to ask you um, a kind of perspective. Again, I've, I've, learned from these last few years and it, and it sounds like you already kind of touched on it but there's an element of the perception of suicide being cowardice you know oh, they're so selfish you know why could they do that and leave all that pain what i'm seeing and you know, people respond oh think of your kids think of your wife i've had people not only have been about to take their own life i mean probably a hundred on this show i've also had some people that did it. They jumped off the bridge, they pulled the trigger and they just survived, which, you know, thank God they did. But now they're left with those wounds, you know, physically and mentally as well. But what seems to be a resounding common denominator, aside from obviously wanting the pain to end, which is, you know, one part, is the feeling of being a burden. So at that moment, there's, the brain is completely miswired through trauma, sleep deprivation, you know, organizational stress, TBIs, all these compounding factors that we hear. But instead of that invisible hand pushing you away from the roof's edge, it's kind of gone round the back now and said, you know, if, if you if you jump, if you pull the trigger, you will remove yourself from your family and they'll be happier. So, but then that's not a message you hear very often. It's like, oh, think of the, you know, if you tell that person, they'll think of your family, good point, click, you know. So what is, you, you know, where were you in that point and was that feeling the same for you? Did you feel like, the the way out would only benefit everyone around you. Exactly. I was in the way. I was the shameful perpetrator that was in the way. Another divorce. A son that doesn't want to talk to me because I was never home. Um, you know, I'm doing this silly job that has no more purpose. You know, I used to go out and save. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't think of it then, but, you know, now when I used to focus on, you know, we, we got pulled out of this and we got pulled out of that. She's like, what about the hundreds of thousands of people's lives that you did save? You know, uh, wow, what a perspective. <laughs> so, you know, what I choose to focus on. Yeah. It, you know, well, you know it, it's funny that you, sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but no. it's funny that you brought that, not funny, but appropriate that you brought that up because we just finished a uh, workshop retreat this past weekend with special operators. And one of um, the operators talked about the exact same thing. He said, I live in chronic pain all the time, you know, due to my injuries and not to mention, you know, the mental and spiritual turmoil of being a combat veteran for all of these years. And he said, I've had suicidal ideation the last 10 years of my life. And you know, he's gotten more vocal about it even. And he's like, the worst thing that people can say to me is think of your girls, think of your kid, think of your wife. He's like, I do think of them every day and all day, which is why I'm suicidal. And he's like, the worst thing somebody can say to me is think of your kids and your wife. He's like, I am. And so I think he's, and then he literally asked the room, he was like, please, if you know somebody who's suicidal, don't put that on them because that becomes more of a shame. It becomes more of an embarrassment. And I had a spouse say the same thing. She was suicidal for years. And she said, every time someone said, think of your girls, 
She said it worked in the opposite effect for me. It made me feel more shameful, more embarrassed, more like, why can't I be like the other moms who would never think of doing this to their girls? Something really is wrong with me. So they are better off without me. So what you're saying, actually, we have that mirrored constantly back to us. It's a touchy. People are, I'm afraid to say anything to anybody because I might screw it up. Right. I might mess it up and cause them to do something. When we tell everybody it's never anyone else's fault, but the person who does it. Right. You can give them tools. You can give them hope. You can't stop. I mean, physically, sure, if you were there, you can stop them that one time or whatever. But if that's a determination someone's made, that's someone's made that determination, you know, and they've thought about it. And whether they're in a state of mind or a good one or a bad one, it's still not your fault. You know, thinking about your kids, it's like, hey, you're worthy of being here. You're worthy of being here. And yes, it's okay to feel this way, but this is not the answer. Or just share your story and listen. You know what I mean? You don't have to have the perfect response to anyone other than just being there. Because if we feel safe, secure, attached, and connected, and any one of those break away, we start to look for it. And they don't feel secure. So you need to focus on making them feel secure or safe and connect with them while talking to them. You know, and that attachment of sharing a story. You've gotten two of the four that they're missing already done in in a five-second phone call. And people are afraid, you know, obviously you don't want someone to who that you care about or you don't even know to do something like that. So I think it's out of love, concern um, or just human instinct to say, let me try to save this person who's talking this way. I'll bring them back to what should matter to them most. I'll bring them back to their kids or their spouse or, or whatever it is that's most valuable in their life. And I try to remember, you know, and remind them of that. Because I'm so afraid for this person and I'm so afraid that this person's going to do something that can't be undone, that I'm going to grasp at straws. And, and truly, no one means to shame anyone or embarrass anyone in this situation. It truly is out of love, concern and support. And I think that's the main message is I hear you. I hear that you're in pain. I hear that you're done with this fight and you're really tired of fighting this fight. How can I help be your battle buddy in this fight? Let them answer what they need. You know, you don't have to tell them you need this, this or that. Being an active listener and a good listener is the best thing that you can do. People will tell you what they need. You just got to listen and, and go underneath the the initial surface. Get to the why under the why and, and be curious with the person. And um, obviously judgment has no place in this situation um, in time. And like you said, I think Tom and I used to say, even he said, you know, me taking my life or the thought of me taking my life was very selfish. I was going to leave, you know, my my ex, you know, during the divorce. I would have left her after a 15-year marriage. My, my son was 14 years old. And, you know, all of the problems I had were going to make Thomas's life way harder and PJ's life way harder and family and friends. And when his parents found out, they were devastated that he had a suicide attempt. So, you know, and the same with me, I had a suicide attempt as well. And so, for both of us, we were both so tired of the fight we were fighting. It really didn't have anything to do with our family or friends. It's I'm tired of this battle. I don't want to fight this battle anymore. Right now, I can't see a way out of it. So I'm just going to end this fight. There's always a way out of that battle. Sometimes you're too fogged. Maybe you're not getting enough sleep. You're sleep deprived. You talked about that, how dangerous that is. Maybe you're drinking a fifth every night. We know that veterans are shooting themselves after they're so heavily intoxicated. Clearly, they don't want to do that. If you have to get so drunk in order to commit the act, you don't really want to commit that act. You're just tired of the fight. 
So we got to help people understand there are ways to win this battle, whatever it is that you're fighting. There's a way to the other side of it. And once you get there, you're going to be fine. You will. It's not going to be easy, but every single person we have talked to who has battled suicide has gotten to the other side of it and is like, thank God, like Tom, thank God I didn't pull the trigger. Thank God, you know, the pin didn't fire. Thank God when I jumped from the bridge, which we, you know, we saw the documentary on the San Francisco bridge, the people who had jumped, every single person who was interviewed said immediately, immediately as soon as their hand left the railing that they regretted it. Every single one. I think the best is to give people hope and not feed them shame about thinking your kids is shame. I thought of my son. I was ashamed. Think of your kids. I'm like, I have been. That's why I'm killing myself. It's give them hope, you know, and, and I get it. It's, it's, it's a message of that you're trying to stop them to, from doing something, but you have to pause and think they need hope. They don't need a message of think of anyone because they probably already have. If they're going to really die, they've thought of everyone they love the most. So, Hope is what people need. Well, I think that I wish that would be put front and center. If you if you're having thoughts of being a burden, see that as a red flag. That's that's your sign to go get help. Because as you said, that the the alcohol element, that's what I've seen over and over again with a lot of the the near misses. And thank God they were. And even you you talked about the Golden Gate Bridge. One of my guests was Kevin Hines, one of the guys in that documentary that was saved by the by the sea lions. Um, and another one, the, the iconic picture of uh, Kevin Berthea, um facing the California Highway Patrol. Both those guys are be on the on the show as well. And you, so you hear this common denominator over and over and over again. You think about just to put it in you know tongue in cheek terms, all the women you slept with drunk that you wouldn't have sober. That's a good analogy for you doing stupid things when you're drunk. You know. So, um, but you know, it is. I think it's a really important point because as a species, our whole goal is to survive and procreate and, and carry on. And the same adrenaline that kept military, police, fire safe, that you know, made us get away from the gunfire, the building collapse, um, understand that your brain is so miswired that that's gone away. That should, you know, that's a terrifying thing. But breaking down all these elements that contribute to that one perfect storm is how we start deconstructing that. And as, as you know, you guys are testifying today, be on the other side of that and hopefully be in a beacon for everyone that's going through their own struggles. We learned something this weekend in our retreat from one of the doctors from uh, where I used to work. Study they've done over the last 20 years, and I'll screw this up so I'll keep this minimum because it's <laughs> going to come out. They're just now starting to do the study in special forces units, but... They were able to do it in the unit because they know who we are, where we came from, and selection from. They keep immaculate records. So they started scanning brains and figuring out what's going on after TBI and you know post-traumatic stress. And what, what, why are people behaving similarly poorly? Talking about the parts of the brain that are affected from TBIs and tra- trauma, and the frontal lobe is shut down, and things that we need to make decisions and not – Freak out and overescalate and regulate your regulated emotions. It's dead. May never come back. So you have to learn how to do things. You know, I mean, some of my friends are pretty rough. I mean, I'm not as rough as I used to be, but I see some of them now and the way they talk to people. You know, excuse me, sir, could I could I help you get a mask? That's a pretty polite way to ask someone to put a mask on before they walk into a hotel or something. No, fuck off. It's not an answer that normal people use. You know. Um, but it's normal answers for a lot of people I know. Especially, and they're like, the I don't damage. know why they're like, 
you know, what's going on? Physically, they have to be aware of it because physically their brain has changed. Hearts are missing that you need to regulate those emotions. And so I was telling people it's not your fault. You can't fight biology. Stop acting like there's nothing wrong with you. There's something wrong with you and it can be it can be worked on. Well, for both of you, I was going to say, Jen, but this is you know, absolutely for both set of eyes. What one I think of the underutilized tools that I again was just have my open eyes open to recently is the family, whether it's the wife, the husband, the kids, um, because our baseline as you know, our soldiers, responders, it's Chinese water torture. It creeps down so slowly that what we thought was normal is so far from normal. But, you know, our family really are the, are the barometer, I think. So what are some of the the things that you tell people in your you know, classes, in your retreats as as warning signs from the outside looking in? And, you know, I, I'm so glad you said that because spouses, children, close family members, caretakers are some of the best people who can help facilitate the change or save a life, truly, because we're so in tune with our spouses or the people that we love that we can pick up subtle differences. This is why we, she started this foundation because she was the only one who noticed me behaving differently when my two friends didn't, because that's how we always behaved. She saw nice, funny, and then one day different, like, and she picked up on it. So it was subtle, you know, and I, I didn't, it's not, it wasn't even conscious really. It wasn't like, Oh, Hey, I think Tom's sitting in the parking garage with a gun in his lap. Obviously I would have been in the parking garage calling 911 as I was running there myself. But I knew that the, the guy who was typically very funny and charismatic, um, at work was, was very, very quiet, very withdrawn. Um, and, and yes, Tom could definitely turn off you know, the charm and, and the funniness and the humor and go straight to work mode, which looks very, very different as well. You know, very focused, very serious, very straight, honestly, very calm until he's not. Um, and that takes something to get him there too. But, um, that day he was just very different and and the way he was handling people and himself was very different. And so it was, Hmm, we're all meeting down at the bar. Tom's not here. He's usually the first one here again, something's different. And him not responding to the text immediately, hey, we're all meeting here. Tom's usually extremely responsive. And it it sat for a few minutes, you know, and I did another text and that sat for a few minutes. And I'm like, now this is, there's too many things that are adding up to something's not right. And um, called him, he didn't answer the phone. And that's when I started to go, huh, now, now, I'm, now I'm worried. And at that point I wrote, you're late. I knew Tom well enough at that point, maybe a few months that he hated being late. Like that 10 minutes early is 20 minutes late. So I was like, Hey, you're late. We're all wait. Where are you? Be right there. You know? And that was the thing that kind of snapped him back was the military mindset of I'm never late. I'm always on time. I'll complete this mission. Um, so spouses, caretakers, friends, somebody that's close starts to say, Hey, this behavior, whatever it is, because I'd love to be able to say, if you can look at these 10 things, you'll know somebody's, you know, at a very dark place. Somebody's at a very dangerous place. But like Tom mentioned, our first responders are military people who have suffered a lot of trauma. The behavior is different. So, you know, we'll go and talk around the country and say, oh, if you see this type of reckless behavior, then I'm standing in front of a room of all green berets. And I'm like, 
well, crap, this is kind of like all of you right now, you know, behaving this way with the, you know, with these types of behaviors. However, you know, what you can look for in your buddy is if these behaviors change. So if your guy is always at the bar with you and he's drinking, that might not be a sign that something's really wrong. However, if he doesn't start showing up to the bar, something's probably wrong. You know, if he's the guy that can come out and have a drink or two, hey, I'm going to go back home. He's the guy now who is closing the bar down. Something's probably wrong. Um, Alcohol is a tough indicator because, like I said, it's used as a medicine and a coping mechanism for so many that it that's normalized. When someone like me stepping into the the world going, why are you guys all ordering like two and three drinks at a time? Like, is the bar closing down? Are you buying them for a girl? What's happening? They're like, no, I just buy two beers at a time. I'm like, wow. Now, if that guy, you know, is showing up and he looks deadpan, he's not being funny, he's not being charismatic, he said he's not really drinking much anymore. Great. Did you stop drinking? Well, now I just don't want to anymore. You hear that a lot. Like the things that you used to love doing, even the toxic behaviors, when those stop or pause, that's an indication, whatever that may be. Um, I think for spouses, they especially know they used to love doing this, even their careers. I'll have a lot of Green Berets call and say, I love being a Green Beret, but now I don't. But this is all I ever wanted to do. And I love it. I don't understand why I don't like this job anymore. I don't understand why I don't like to train or shoot anymore. I used to love to do that. That's a huge warning sign. The things that you love to do no longer can carry your interest anymore. And a spouse will pick up on that. Believe me, you know, oh, he used to hunt every year. He's not even going hunting this year. That's a sign something's going on. That's, that's a little bit bigger than, you know, he's going to miss this season. So picking up those subtle cues, the big ones, the small ones, um, those are really important to pay attention to and dialogue about and not be afraid to talk about suicidal ideation, not be afraid to say, this is in my mind. Tom, Tom told me a thousand times I, I'm feeling suicidal today or, you know, I'm having these thoughts. And as scary as it is for a spouse, I always want to hear when he's in that space. You know, I, I can't help him if I don't know. So I want to know and he'll tell me and I'll say, okay, what do we need to do? Or what do you need to do today to get back to feeling okay? You know, and some days he's like, I just, I need to check out. All right. Or, Hey, I need to get involved in something. All right. But, um, spouses, kids, family members, caretakers, those signs are there. It's not your responsibility. If you miss them, we get just as many calls of people, you know, Hey, I was checking on my buddy. I thought he was okay you know, come to find out if I would have just answered the call that night, or if I would have just gone into town, or if I would have just, and we have to try to release that guilt and say, that decision wasn't yours. That decision was that person's and their responsibility. I understand how you feel through this and you have to work through this grief and maybe shame that is displaced, but you still feel. And I think we just have to stop telling people not to feel the way that they feel. It's okay. Well, with that, it kind of reminded me of a guy who had on the show who is actually a strength and conditioning guru, but um, he's a mad scientist to an incredible kind of journey following him the last few years. But one of the conversations we had was kind of lean towards mental health and actually even using exercise with that, which we're you know seeing as, as a very healing thing. But he talked about um, fight, flight, flow, and freeze. And with the mental health battle, I, I'm probably kind of butchering this a bit, but, you know, fight was obviously someone who was 
where you guys are at now, you know, all the positive coping mechanisms, flight may have been, you know, the the drinking flow obviously is is a, in a good mental space, but freeze was that giving up. It was that submitting. It was the deer in the headlights and an acceptance of death. And that was, you know, the seemingly shift from, from one mode to another where that was a giant red flag for people around. The person themselves is probably going to be hard to identify it. But just like you said, that shift from, you know, alpha, you know, athlete, male and female to kind of apathetic zombie, I think is a, is a giant shift that we need to be aware of. That's what I mean. What our, the whole premise of our foundation was a battle buddy system. The spouse, people, you know, a lot of people send the veterans to Disney or fishing or a hunting trip. Now that's great, but when they come home, the problem is still there, right? We wanted to work on the problem. We wanted to work on gathering another battle buddy to help the spouse and and, and helping the spouse understand what's going on with their their veteran, their warrior, or whatever, so they can not feel left out, which we get a lot. I thought it was me. You know, and the veterans like, I didn't want to share anything because I was protecting her. And they, they're thinking, I thought it was me, you know. So it's always awareness of communication with your battle buddy, your best long-term battle buddy. Because everybody gets out. They don't believe it up front. I tell them, listen, nobody gives a shit about what you did. That tribe is going to go away. Those friends for life are going to be like friends that text you every six months to once a year to Christmas to you'll, you'll forget about it, man. Guess who's there? The person that's always there. You know, that's your, your battle buddy for life. So if they both have resources and tools to look out for each other, I think the healing was quicker and more long-term. Well, staying on that kind of um, shame topic again, one thing that really worried me, and I'm so glad that we ended up doing this recording, you know, we shifted the date because I think it's even more pertinent now. It's funny how the universe works. But <laughs> I'm, not a, I'm not, you know, a veteran. I'm not a member of the military. But through this project, you know, starting really out of burying first responders, um, you know, the mental health side, the physical health side has become the core of what I do, along with compassion and kindness. Um, and I'm seeing kind of like a resurgence, as we talked about earlier, of Vietnam, where there's a lot of shame. All these people that fought for 20 years in the Middle East, and now we're pulling out and they're seeing their allies, you know, the, the towns, the kids they play with. You know, being brutalized in that city, being taken over by the Taliban or, you know, Al Qaeda, whoever it is at that time. I know you were in Ramadi and I'm sure there was an element of that. What would you tell the veteran listening that feels like, you know, it was all for nothing, feels, feels that guilt, feels that survivor guilt, feels that, that abandonment for the people that they worked alongside? That's a tough one because when you answer it, if, if someone's not ready to hear the answer, right? Not the answer, you know, it's not my answer. So <laughs> they want to be angry. There's people that want to be angry. I get it. Um, I, I put out a short video asking people to consider things like um, go straight to the main source or go straight to the main topic. If a different administration made the exact same decision, would you still be as upset about it, right? So that removes the people if they can answer that honestly, you know, and answer it yourself in your own head. Well, you know, I'm just throwing a fit because it's the, the Democrats or I wouldn't be if it was Republicans, you know. All right. So let's remove that. Now let's focus on something. We spent 20 years over there. What's different? What's well, all gone to shit now? It's all a waste of time. OK, if it all goes to shit right now. They had 20 years of freedom. They had 20 years of progress. There was, I don't know how many people born into freedom. The Taliban that we're fighting now 
are fighting our sons, right? I'm not there still. And if you are, you're probably getting old. Your son's probably coming up on there to, to go over. They were raised differently. The Taliban have had 20 years to see freedom. So they're different. They're even acting differently. So we've done some good. And, and if you don't feel like we've done any good, think of the 20 years that you've given the people that lived there a break. You know, don't don't focus on everything else. And, and, you know, and it's just we all have jobs to do. We all don't know why we make our decisions. You know, why other people make their decisions unless we're fully invested in, in our behind the scenes. So it's always easy to Monday morning quarterback or judge, you know, a decision you didn't have to make. Do I like the Taliban? I haven't liked the Taliban. No, presently and in the past, they don't do good things. Do I like Afghanistan? Sure. Um, could they have held on their own? I don't know why they collapsed so fast. 20 years of training them. I mean, I know they're not, you know, mostly not able to pull together like that unless they want to fully. And, and that's their culture and the insides. So I tell people to focus on the 20 years that we gave them. Calm down and let's see what shakes out. See what happens. I mean, in the chaos, it's easy to be chaotic with it. It's easy to run and flow with it, right? Oh, the flow of the chaos. Yes, freak out, freak out. And then people complaining. Zach, all right, whatever news channel you're watching, watch the other news channel for the exact amount of time for balance, right? Then you get the full, not even the full. You get what everyone wants to tell you from both sides. Still not the full truth, right? And so it's breaking in some instances i wouldn't want that job to make those decisions right because then people would be mad at me too right so it's it's easy to sit outside when you don't have to take the responsibility and point fingers and say you did a shitty job tell me what your plan was then what would your plan have been i mean and, and what information did you have to make that plan does it look horrible yeah it's it looks really horrible. really horrible and it's very very sad what's going on am i gonna lose my mind over it i'm not right i i I look out in my front yard, and if I'm not being affected at that distance, I might go out a little further, my little further. But if it's really not affecting my family and I really can't affect the world other than to add more chaos to it, then I probably just remain quiet about it. You know, I, uh, I spend my time getting fired up about things. Maybe it's a, an age thing. I don't know. I'm not going to tell people their feelings are wrong and not, not, not heard and unwarranted. But I would ask them to consider their feelings and emotions along with the behavior that they're portraying with those feelings and emotions. What's your behavior like? Yeah, you know, it's okay to be mad, but are you trying to instigate more? Or, and, and is that good? I was going to say the last thing we need right now is more turmoil. It's just one thing on top of the other. And I, you know, it's devastating. It's devastating to see the loss of life that's happening right now and, and, you know, kids trying to go to school that they're not going to get to go to school anymore. And, you know, women who have started industry who are told that's gone for you. And, and so for the people who have had their taste of freedom and have had the opportunity because of, you know, the world's peacekeepers who, who wanted to come in and say, we're going to give you an opportunity. Um, I think wherever there's a taste of freedom, freedom is still going to be fought for. And we don't know how this is going to shake out in a week or three months or six years from now. And, and honestly, throwing more gasoline to the fire, which we're seeing a lot too, is even infighting between veteran communities. It's, that's not what we need right now. 
you know, we need to come together. Yeah, absolutely. Unify and say, okay, this is a mess right now. And unless, you know, I know Tom's not getting on a C-130 or whatever and going back to Afghanistan. He can't affect what's happening there right now. Um, So the best that we can do is be the support that we can for people who are hurting through it. That's our role now. You know, and if your role is not going back over there and, and gearing up, then don't bring that fight to America either. You know, we don't need it. We don't need more turmoil. We don't need more division. Um, we really need to be unifying at this point in time. I mean, it's just kind of crazy when when you see America tearing each other apart. It's just not not it's not who we are. It's not where we should be. So I want to I want to add to that in one sec, but just just as an analogy, I, I spoke to a guy uh, Jeremiah who's a Green Beret veteran. Um, now he's a cowboy in Wyoming. Pretty cool. Pretty cool transition. Awesome. Um, but uh, yeah, he, we were talking about again that 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 feeling of not affecting anything, and I gave him a parallel in the first responder community. We have an obesity epidemic that neither administration, left or right, has done anything about. And our people have got sicker and sicker and fatter and fatter. And that's why we've had so many deaths with COVID, in my opinion. We have, you know, an epidemic on our road, roads where I've never heard anyone talking about making the driving test harder in this country. And so responders go to death after death after death after death. Even though fundamentally those two areas are completely, you know, there's a, a lack of leadership from both sides and it's an epidemic. Each responder that goes to each one of these events makes a difference. And that's what I think, you know, that lens is for, for the military. At the time in Ramadi, in Kabul, in wherever it was, they did affect people. And I hear story after story of kindness and compassion and, you know, from, from combat zones. So they did. But, you know, I think it's up to us now, as you said, to stop allowing our country to be divided over masks or law enforcement or whatever by people that I think are elected in a system that's completely broken in the first place. Like I tell people, if you go to a poo factory, don't expect cupcakes. You know, it's just, it is what it is. So, but we have to unite and actually change, you know, the leadership and and come together because they have, you know, it's a giant wedge. It's evident for anyone from the outside looking in. I think you put it perfectly. What's going on now? Our enemy are absolutely, you know, wringing their hands, seeing at us, you know, tearing each other apart. So the way we stick it back up their ass is to, to if people are putting a wedge between us, then address that and, and unify and come together and take care of our men and women that are out there for the last 20 years, protect not only them, protecting strangers in foreign lands, but also their families, that their loved ones were away while they were doing it. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's a heavy weight. And I, I think you're right. Like it, you think back to like the American Revolution, right? And and how it was a band of misfits, you know, really who were like, hey, we don't we don't really like this tyranny anymore. I think we should do something about it. And it wasn't just the war fighters. It was the farmers. It was the philosophers. It was the lawyers. It was every single American who came together to say, this is what we want. Let's go fight for it. And it took everyone. It took everyone to unify for that fight. And, you know, of course, initially that, that our country was split too. the people who sympathized with the British and supported them and the people who wanted to break away. And eventually we won because we unified. And I think we were dubbed terrorists, too. Yeah, it all starts somewhere. You start as a terrorist and next thing you know, you're running the government. Right. I mean, 
I hate to say it, Taliban, whatever. They started out as a group. They gained power. Obviously, they've gained enough power, right? I mean, to be able to do what they did, they have enough support. And now they're down. Pretty much they're running the government, right? I mean, we did that once, right? Everyone's probably gone through that a couple times at least. So it's the it's the nation. It's the life of a nation, right? Life of countries. And, and I, I think that uh, we sit here a lot and we're like, we're the good guys, right? Well, yeah. Doesn't everybody say they're the good guys? Everybody pumps themselves up by saying, we're the good guys. Let's go kill those Americans who are trying to affect our way of life. We're somebody's bad guy, too. So we always have to be thoughtful of how we look to other people versus just we're what's right. Right. Aren't yeah. We? Well, we I always think right? the world's collapsing. It's becoming a lot smaller. And, it's you like know, with the birth of the Internet, it went from, you know, not knowing what's going on here or there to having access to what we're allowed to have access to, I guess, in a second. And so I, I think we're connected in a very different way. I mean, nobody was getting FaceTime videos from Vietnam when we were pulling out. However, we're seeing footage from people's cell phones, you know, people in a very real time, fast way of communicating exactly what's happening on the ground. I think that's a new kind of warfare as well. And, and it brings the war a face. It brings it, you know, when you're seeing these children and you're seeing these women that are having acid dumped on them, girls being pulled out of school buses, being shot, and you're seeing that 30 minutes after it happened, it's a way different experience than, you know, we had had in our past as well. So I, I think the world's collapsing. We're starting to realize I care about, you know, that Afghan child, the African child, the South American child, the, the St. Louis child. Like we are becoming a global community and, you know, the bullies are always going to be there. And it's it's how do you handle the bullies? How do you handle the ones that want to harm or hurt us? And I, I truly feel like the only way to do that is is through a unified front. And we just got to pull it together. Absolutely. I mean, look at, you know, Martin Luther King, Mahatma Gandhi, some of these people that did it without <laughs> violence and they were able to unify yes. people. And so, yes. and like, you know, I talk about all the time. I, I can't stand either side. I think the system is broken, but we need leaders. We need leadership. And we've the reason we have distrust of vaccines, you know, um, division over law enforcement is because of a leadership void. And we've allowed these minorities, these extremists to, to control the airwaves. And it, it is tyranny when you look at it. So, you know, I'm, I, I'd love this podcast format because we can have a long conversation and people can hear true leaders and start questioning these idiots that we put in front of us on our screen. Well, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Uh, and the way they act, like they know everything, you know, it's, it's, I look at her, I'm like, we're making up so much stuff that it changes so fast that we have to make up more stuff. It's like, you're just completely lying. I've lost complete trust in everything and everybody. And that's, like you said, that's the problem. It's, it's the it's loss of trust <laughs> in our leadership to where I won't take the vaccine because I really don't believe you, you know, or I'm going to get it because I'm spewing whatever. Nobody knows. That's the division. It's the lack of trust in leadership. And people are falling behind their leaders, whoever those leaders are, and defending them, but... When Without have, even questioning. When them. you have the conversation in the general population, we all are saying the same things. This is ridiculous. What's happening here? Absolutely. You know, versus you voted for him or you didn't. You know, we're all saying the same thing though. What's going on with these idiots? 
Is it that hard? I mean, you have all these people to, and you can't answer and they're just nitpicking now because. Well, and the amazing thing is America has so many incredibly intelligent, bright, amazing leaders. We, you know, we can do this. <laughs> we can get leadership up there. You know, I, I told Tom, I said, out of all the Americans that we have, even if 1% was capable of being the kind of leader that we need, there's a big pool of people that truly, I, I hope, will step up. I hope we'll have the courage to shake the system up. I know <laughs> it's a scary, not easy thing to it's do. It's harder and, and it's, harder when people can pull out your background and make you look bad in a second nowadays. Yeah, so I, that's that I get it. Was like, I'm not doing that. I get <laughs> it, but we, we need we need people who want that challenge to step up in a real meaningful way and, and to leadership. unite us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, speaking Great. of true leadership, tell me about All Secure Foundation, um, what you offer to the special operations community or special forces, and then how people listening can help support that. So like Tom said, All Secure Foundation was kind of born out of our his experiences through life. Obviously, we serve the special operation community. That's where Tom was raised up. Um, also, we're a really small nonprofit, and, and really we're focusing our energies on helping the community um, who is really, really struggling with finding their footing back home um, because the resources aren't there. So we, we were born as a resource library. It came out of the struggles of our own experience of how do we get help? How do we get to the other side of PTS? What What is it? What is secondary PTS? You know, we're losing so many spouses to suicide and children to suicide as well. So, you know, we have this war-torn country in America. It just looks different than other war-torn countries. So how do we help our warriors and warrior families reacclimate back into um, a life that they can be happy to lead. You know, people will joke and say, oh, we'll get you back to normal. Normal looks different for every single person. What we want to do is, and people will say, oh, you're an anti-suicide or a veteran suicide uh, organization. We're not. Of course, we um, work to help heal, but we focus our energy on rebuilding the foundation. If you can rebuild the foundation at home, whatever that looks like for you, we will reduce veteran suicide. We know that the, like I said before, the statistics about um, incidences happening after a family disturbance or after the loss of purpose and tribe, that this is where we're losing people. And so if we can be the answer to that, if we can help retrain the brain, if we can help retrain the relationship, if we can help the spouse become compassionate again, we hear caretakers fatigue, compassion fatigue, secondary PTS everyone in the house is breaking down and everyone deserves a chance to heal. And so All Secure Foundation, we serve special operation warriors. We've never turned a single person down though. So if you are struggling, reach out. Um, the contact form on our website, allsecurefoundation.org goes directly to me. So I field every single email from there, um, talking with Tom, talking with myself. We have therapists, we have experts um, that can step in we have additional partners for resources. So you make the phone call and we'll catch you and we'll work with you from there to figure out what the next best step in your journey is to healing. And that'll look different for every person. But we want to kind of be that, that initial battle buddy. That goes equally for veterans and spouses. Yes. You don't need a veteran to call us if you're a spouse. Hey, they both need help. They both need work. Um, we do a lot with law enforcement and first responders. Um, so... Um, it, yeah, you know what? And I'd like to say that we get a lot of first responder calls and they start fun. off with, 
my trauma isn't like yours. My combat wasn't like, I don't, nobody cares, right? I tell that to warriors, you know, I don't want to see a therapist unless they've been to combat. Really? Nobody cares. Nobody cares. It's this side of it. How are we feeling, right? How are we feeling? And I tell the law enforcement, you know, stop putting yourself down. That comparison is a thief of healing, right? Mine wasn't like yours. So what does that mean? Well, okay, if mine was better or more or harder, then I've learned more. So good you're coming to me. You don't need to put yourself down if that's what you think. But that comparison is, I tell them, you live in your combat zone yeah. with your family. And the enemy is me and people like me. I know why you're grumpy. Mine's over there and I'm still grumpy, right? I'm still fearful. So imagine, you know, guys don't ever put themselves in that worst stressful position. It's always someone else's has it worse, so I'm not going to reach out. So never, never compare your trauma to anyone else's. It doesn't matter. If you feel the same, then you feel the same. Let's get to work on healing that. Absolutely. Well, where online can they find the website? Uh, we're at allsecurefoundation.org. And then we're also on all the social media platforms as All Secure Foundation. Beautiful. Well, you guys have books as well. So we have uh, Tom's All Secure and then Arsenal of Hope, Jen with Holly Lawrence. Have I spelled that right? I said that yeah. right. Um, so again, tell people uh, a little bit about the books and then where they can find those too. Yeah, also curious about a lot about what we kind of what we talked about. It's a little bit about my life and how I got into the unit with some nice, cool stories like, the you know, the the unit version, the Delta version of Somalia that hasn't been told yet. The capture of Saddam Hussein. Um, I don't think that's been really told yet. Not at least by anybody that was there that I know. Of. <laughs> um, some other missions along the way no one's ever heard of. And it's kind of like hiding the peas and the brownies, as Jen calls it, of, of it wraps up with. Here's what all that did to me. Here's what it does to a human who dedicates his life to this. Oh, by the way, all the training in between and all the other missions in the middle that you know, we don't talk about. Here's what it does to relationships. So it's kind of like, here's all the negative things I did along the way so you don't repeat it. Uh, oh, by the way, my book ends up with, and here's how I got some help. And then I get messages all the time of, loved your book. I mean, okay, War Story's great, but man, in the end, when you opened up and I realized this, it's a whole nother book. Guys, I read it twice because in one book it was one way. Reading it again, it's a whole nother book a different way. And I go, yeah, when your perspective changes, this is what you're looking for. It's a completely different book and it's about help and healing. And that's kind of where Jen's, uh, after beating up me about the head and shoulders for years, write a book, write a book. I'm like, <laughs> I'm not a Navy SEAL. I'm not writing a book. You know, All the jokes finally, that come with it. Every yeah. one of them that I've heard. Um, she put it this way. It's it's the best way to reach more people, which is what we wanted to do is reach more people. And 100 percent of the book goes back to the foundation to help more people. Yeah. And I think really the reason I was begging Tom to write his book was 10 hours a day talking to warriors who had the same story. I'm like, you got to put this on paper because we can't get to everybody. People need to understand that they're not in this alone, that, you know, it doesn't make you weak to ask for help. It's a sign of strength. It's a sign of courage um, to to take that step is to start healing and and how different and better your life can be when you make that decision. I don't want to live this way anymore. I'm going to start figuring this out. And that journey is unique to every person. But hearing somebody's journey can be greatly helpful um, as, hey, this is kind of a compass to go with this map. This is their direction. You know, 
I um, was getting the same type of calls with spouses, um, warriors on what to do next. Like, we're okay, here's the compass, here's the map, but I, I really don't know where to start. So I wrote Arsenal of Hope as a little bit of our story. Um, it has other warrior stories in there, other people who have um, overcome their struggles, different perspectives, um, and, and mostly how to get to the other side of that. So a little bit more tips, a little bit more practical applications on ways that you can start that journey. I got a message from somebody after her book came out. Hey, I'm going through the airport, man. I saw somebody reading this gin book. And I'm like, oh, cool. And I'm like, well, they're bawling. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so it's one not of those really books. the vacation. Like, I'm going to take this on vacation and read <laughs> like, it. Jen's no. like, don't. Don't no. take it on vacation and read it. It'll ruin it. <laughs> I don't want to be responsible for that. Um, but it's a very well. It scratches open some yeah. wounds. Let's just say that. But they're necessary to heal. Well, I think you hit on an area that I think is kind of lacking in the first responder space where I feel like a lot of, you know, departments, areas, groups, we've kind of got the reduce the stigma element. But what I see is that, well, now what? Whether it's finding a, a culturally competent counselor, whether it's, you know, as I said, books that can give people the tools. So I think that's a really important book to be out there because, you know, like like the whole... You know, some of the the suicide uh, nonprofits that you see out there, it's like donate, donate, donate. It's like I don't, we don't need donations. We need tools for people to physically put their hands on or sit, you know, sit in yes. a chair in front of. So I think it's it's uh, those two together are very very important. The first one is going to kind of lead people down the path. The second one is going to give them the tools, as you said, to start finding whatever their version of healing looks like. She would secretly call other nonprofits and act like somebody <laughs> else and go. I'm interested in getting some tools. My husband's a jerk, blah, blah, blah. She wouldn't, nobody would write her back. Different organizations, people call, oh, we don't do that. Okay, what do you do? Well, we um, help veterans and their families. Okay, what do you do then? Well, we help veterans and their families. And we fundraise to help veterans and their families. I'm like, wow, everybody's fundraising. We've not done a fundraiser because I'm afraid to spend money to make money. That's called gambling in my book, right? <laughs> So if someone throws us a fundraiser, we've, we've gone, yeah, we'll show up and do stuff. Um, but we take every money, every penny we got and we put it back and we create Programs. income streams like books to help people, but it's an income stream, shirts, blah, 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 because everybody has to operate. People have to fly places and, and our retreats cost money, but That's we like, we can say a hundred percent of our donations go right back to our programs to help people. Yeah. We've been really lucky to have a, a donor step up and said, go, go full time, do this, make, make a difference. We've got you. And so that's been pretty, we've had some really amazing people step up who, who love the community, who want to support the community, who are answering the call. How can I help? Um, everybody's got to answer that call their own way. So, but it's always appreciated in any, in area, any area of help. Um, so Yeah. Yeah. Well, I see that a lot with, um, you know, what they call social business now, which I love that model where someone will start a business. Cause I mean, I think to me, you know, nonprofit is, is, uh, is kind of needy in a way. So if you're able to create, you know, a business that has that built in, you know, um, nonprofit support, then that's a beautiful model. And I see a lot of the communities that show up over and over again around the veteran and first responder space. Those are the ones that I shout from the rooftops from because because they get it. They're not they're not profiteering off the backs of our veterans. They're actually trying to help our veterans. Yeah, 
there, there's a lot of great organizations doing great works. A lot of businesses that have popped up that are, are really trying to, like you said, there's a lot of messages about break the stigma. And I, I actually think we're kind of getting there, you know, like we'll go around a basis now, especially the younger generation. They've been raised differently. They're a little bit more in tune with the emotional space. They're getting it a little bit quicker. The guys like Tom, you know, in their fifties are a little saltier, a little, a little harder to get, um, more, dirt ex- on it. more experience too. Right. They've been through a lot. Well, but, now we tell them you can't rub dirt on it, guys. That gets infected. <laughs> it's an infection. So don't rub dirt on it. <laughs> Listen, just listen. Reach out to all security. Sage, do smudging, whatever, but don't rub that up. Brilliant. Well, Tom and Jen, I just want to say thank you so much. This has been such a great conversation. And again, two, two very different perspectives. And what I love when I get someone who is such a high level when it comes to manliness, as the perception is, is that now we can call bullshit and anyone saying, oh, you know, I'm a real man. I don't feel feelings, all this stuff. Because, well, I've had SEALs and Deltas and, you know, PJs and yeah. SWAT operators and you name it. And they all said that this shit is awful and, you know, they almost blew their head off. So you can just drop that facade now. But the the dynamic, not only of your story coming together, but, you know, the fact that over and over again, I see people that already paid their dues in the military, the corporate space, whatever it was. And when we talk about leadership, the the agencies that have all the money drop the ball over and over again. So firefighters, paramedics, you know, uh, soldiers pick it up and be like, well, if you're not going to do anything about it, then I'm going to step up. So I want to thank you so much, not only for what you're doing with the foundation, but for being so generous with your time and coming on the podcast today. Thank you. This is great. We love love what you're doing. We love getting the message out to more people to hear about it. It's it's sad that people don't know that there's someone out there that can help them. So we're that's here. really what we want. We want okay. people to know that we're here.